Mike DeWine returns. Casinos make the ballot and earmarking the Columbus income tax hike. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at Coside, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Gil Price, Managing Editor for the Columbus Call and Post. Sam Gresham of Common Cause Ohio. And Michael Miller, attorney and former Franklin County prosecutor. The slate of candidates for statewide offices next year is nearly set. Former U.S. Senator Mike DeWine this week announced he will run for Attorney General. First, he would face Delaware County Prosecutor David Yost in the Republican primary, with the winner to face Democrat Richard Cordray, who won the office last year in the special post-Mark Dan election. Michael Miller, why isn't Mike DeWine running for governor? Well, I uh, have no direct pipeline there, Mike, yeah. but my thought is uh, probably a combination of things. I think he probably feels that uh, John Kasich has got uh, a leg up and is going to be tough to beat. And I think he probably, uh, being a, an attorney, which John is not, I think he has some interest in the attorney general's office. So putting the two together, maybe one of a positive and one of a negative uh, nature, that's what he's doing. He has the resume for attorney general, being a former prosecutor and attorney He certainly general. has the resume. He's got the experience. And uh, I think probably a lot of Republicans felt from the beginning that that's where he would probably end up, although he's going to have uh, perhaps a uh, formidable uh, primary and a very, very difficult uh, general. What makes the primary tough? Is it because of Mike DeWine's more moderate stances? I, I would believe Party? so. If you go back and look at his record, anti-guns, he worked with Kennedy in putting some legislation passed. He embraced the Brady Bill. Uh, he worked with uh, out to oppose outsourcing. So I think the intra-battle intra among the Republicans about his candidacy will be a major issue. Uh, I was surprised, given his posture when he was in the Senate, that he got this appointment, given uh, the tea parties that we've had in Ohio and the, the posture generally of the Republican Party, that they would nominate him for this office. Now, he would argue he's not anti-gun, just he's in favor of some regulation on gun show right, registrations right. And, and things like that. You know, there's but an interesting aspect to that, too. I remember in, in 2006, when you looked at the vote for um, the vote for uh, Ken Blackwell versus uh, Jim Petro and the vote for, I think her name was O'Brien, uh, against uh, uh, the treasurer, Jeanette Bradley. Uh, Ken Blackwell spent $3 million, O'Brien spent 30000 they got almost the exact same vote. It was a very, it was a very strict, very stringent political hard conservative vote. Block voting. So block voting and, and, and how much each candidate spent didn't make any difference. So I think there's almost a sense, agreeing with you Sam, that it could be very interesting if, uh, if, if, if uh, Yost is perceived as the candidate of the more conservative bloc. But Mike DeWine, Darrell's going to have the money advantage. He's going to be able to raise more money, you'd think, anyway. I Name recognition. Think so. I mean, you know, 12 years in the U.S. Senate, the national contacts you make. But you know, you, you correctly corrected Sam saying, well, he's not really anti-gun, but perceptions in the primary, in a Republican primary among a lot of voters is, yes, he is. He is anti-gun. Um, he was with that dirty old gang of 14 in Washington. He reached across the aisle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how many times have you already talked about this political polarization on this show? We're seeing it more and more. 
Um, and until voters show us different, I think we're, you know, we'll see it again in 2010. The gang, it's been so long now, the gang of 14 yeah. maybe reached a compromise on the assault weapon ban. Right. Correct? Well, yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry, on the, uh, that allowed for judicial, judicial yeah. filibuster. That's right. Yeah. Nominees. That's right. Okay. Now, of course, okay, that's right. Senator, former Senator DeWine would contend this also led to the nomination, successful nomination two, two, of, yeah. of Justice Alito and Chief Justice right. Roberts. Right. So he would argue that was a success. Mm -hmm. A lot of conservatives don't look at it that way, despite 100% pro-life record and everything else that Mike Dwine brings to the table. Well, well, the interesting thing about that, though, I remember, I mean, I was around in 1980 when he won his first time in, in the state Senate. And at the time, he was a member, he was viewed as a member of the Caveman Caucus. Him and Kasich and uh, Bill Ress and some of those guys, they were viewed as hard right guys back in 1980. So but comparison to these guys well, today. Well, it's interesting <laughs> to see how the, either how, either how DeWine has changed or how, how the, the pendulum. pendulum has changed <laughs> so dramatically. The cave. Oh, the cave, yeah. <laughs> or the perception. Or the yeah, perception. perception. One of the things about his speech that I found interesting was he was saying he's, He's running for attorney general to get Ohio back on track. Now, the, the attorney general obviously is, deals with prosecuting crimes and representing the state. Doesn't have a whole lot of economic advisory He really advisory doesn't prosecute role. crimes, though. But he, he linked it to the, more, the economy is down, <laughs> uh, crime goes up, that hurts the cities and towns more. But what's the is attorney that, general got to do with that? Is that a stretch? That's my question. It's a long stretch. The attorney general is primarily the lawyer for state government. That's what he primarily does. Now, he has a relationship to certain task forces that he may have something to do with, but he's not the chief law enforcement person, the most powerful political uh, uh, elected law enforcement person, in my opinion, in this state, is the prosecutor for Franklin County. So let me, <laughs> ask, Mike, let me ask Mike Miller the same question I asked you before. Is he running for governor? Not in 2010, but Four years after that, oh, should John know. Kasich lose uh, to Texas? I think Mike is what 60, 62 or something. something I, I don't know if you look, uh, you know, four or eight years ahead. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can't answer that, Mike. I, I will say what Sam says. I, I think that's true when you talk about uh, the Attorney General prosecutes very, very few crimes. What they do do is they run BCI, and particularly the labs in London and so forth with DNA and that type of thing is very, very important. They have a lot of uh, expertise for. Uh, the child pornography going through uh, the hard drives and all that. I mean, you do a lot of things like that that are very important to prosecutors. But the frontline prosecutors are, are obviously from the 88 counties and not from the AG's office. He but called the, for increases in funding for all the uh, He services. did, and, and, and every prosecutor would, would be in favor of that. But I think the interesting thing, Mike, in terms of what you just raised is the idea of we're going to get the state back on track. The, the argument is an economic argument. The Republicans are going to have a unified economic argument that you need us to turn the state around. The Democrats have torn it up, and you need us to turn the state around. And so I that's think a, that's the a unified economic argument coming from all of their candidates. That's a ticket message rather than an individual candidate. Okay, topic two. Each July, we go to Red, White, and Boom. Each August, we go to the State Fair. Each September, we go to Buckeye Games. And each November, we vote on a casino proposal. <laughs> Continuing that tradition, Secretary of State Jennifer Bruner ruled this week that developers of four, four, four big city casinos have the signatures they need to get on the ballot. She is still investigating allegations of wrongdoing on the part of the petition gatherers. Sam Gresham, this story is the same as it, as it has been. Uh, the difference this year is that maybe by the time voters go to the polls in November, there could actually be slot machines at racetracks. At least the governor hopes that's the case. How does that change this vote? If we go from a set of circumstances where the public and four occasions has resoundingly opposed gambling in Ohio, 
to us now having slots at casinos, I mean slots at racetracks, to having four large casinos in Ohio, the potential after the November election. We go from being having none to all of this gamble, potentially. Now, and then we go to the case of a Supreme Court case where we have opponents already opposing it. Uh, not only did we have the drama of the budget being created where slots and the language and the executive order, but this gambling thing in Ohio is seen as a panacea. But the backdrop of all of that is that revenues from gambling have gone down. So it's not the panacea when you look out across the landscape that everybody thinks it is. The numbers just don't support it. So we'll see what will happen. Are they looking for a panacea, Daryl? Are they looking just to capture some of that money that's going to West Virginia and Indiana and I, Michigan? I, I think that argument finally gained traction. Um, as the governor and the legislature looked at three really bad choices, raise taxes, cut even more, or go to gambling, you know, door number three was, <laughs> was the least offensive to them. Uh, but, you know, there's an interesting subtext here. We, you alluded to the allegations of fraud in the petition uh, circulating process. Those investigations go forward. What that does, however, to whether this remains on the ballot seems to be an open issue. Um, the amendment no one remembers last year, issue one of 2008, changed the way we do these petitions. That's true. Uh, it sends the cases straight to the Supreme Court right. in the hope that we wouldn't have all this last-minute uh, maneuvering before the election. Yeah. But it's also made it really uncertain. It gave certain deadlines as when the Secretary of State had to certify those petitions. So she's already certified for the ballot. I wonder if it turns out that hundreds <coughs> of thousands of these signatures were gathered fraudulently. Can you get that before the Supreme Court knock it off the ballot? That, it's still a little hazy as the exact procedure here. Um, it, it's not like these gambling opponents who are opposed to gambling for the for all the right reasons that they're you know, gambling is bad. You don't want to waste money. It's not, they haven't challenged those signatures. It's the horse tracks that have challenged the right. signatures. I mean, that, so they want money. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it just I mean, has this, a certain smell to it. This you know? may not bring in the money that uh, the governor, the legislature, whatever, thinks. But obviously, betting people are saying, yeah, no pun intended, there's a lot of money out there. Because they, obviously the racetrack people want to stop the casino people so that they'll have Joe, Joe Smith has got more money to spend on the racetrack slots and it doesn't go to the casino. Everybody feels there's a lot of money to be made. And, and that's the anti-gambling people. It's, I'm against gambling if it isn't gambling the way I want it done. Mike, I think and, the thing that makes it different this time is the last proposal for casinos only had one location. That's correct. Now we have four locations. So the racetrack people are a little bit more upset because that's stick as poking their pig because most of the racetracks are in some of these areas. So it's a, it's a whole different scenario. But I want you to imagine if all of this passes, we'll have more gambling in Ohio than most of the surrounding states mm -hmm. in combination with everything that we, mm -hmm. we will go from a plain vanilla state to the most gambling-ist state. <laughs> but, but what's going to be interesting, though, if it all passes then, and I understand where you come from with the uh, racetrack owners, then you're going to have a situation where, think of what it's going to do in terms of the budget projections and how it's going to affect it because, you know, you have these, I think, each of the, each of the tracks is supposed to give a $65 million fee mm -hmm. and get half of everything else. Well, guess what? What if you have all this gambling if it actually reduces the amount of money that's going into the state and then, it, and then you have the governor who has gone, who's been an opponent of gambling for so long come out in favor of it and then actually not generate the revenue he thought was going to generate. And that's a very real possibility, yeah, as Keno has shown us.
Our next topic, the $50 billion state budget is huge, not just in dollars, but in paper. It's several inches thick. As agencies and departments begin to implement the cuts and go through that budget, people on the street begin to see the effects. A couple of things surfaced this week. The dispatch reports that for the first time in two plus years, there is already a waiting list for seniors seeking home health care assistance. Libraries and historic sites are making cuts. The good news for the state's tourism industry, some of the state's tourism PR money has been restored. Darrell Rowland, it did not take long for these cuts to to start to be felt. To hit home. Uh, guess what? All, it wasn't just, you know, pie in the sky, apocalypse by and by that the advocates were saying. These, these are real people and there's going to be, you know, real harm caused. Uh, the state government affects Ohioans. Um, a lot of people don't feel it until a crunch time like this. Uh, sure, the governor signs the budget on uh, Friday afternoon. By Monday morning, we already have a waiting list of people to get into community and home-based healthcare, which they want instead of nursing homes. Ironically, that could force them into nursing homes, um, which they don't want, their families don't want, and I don't think taxpayers want because it's about three times the expense. It's ironic because President Obama has been touting health care reform all week, trying to lower the cost of health care, and here's a program that does lower the cost of health care by keeping people in their homes, so not in nursing homes, but it's being cut. You know, it didn't, it, I didn't understand the logic and the discussions that were going on behind the line, but a couple of things don't make sense. One, to forcing people to go to nursing home versus home care is considerably cheaper, and why that didn't get more money in the budget. Well, you know that. Yeah, nursing care, nursing center, people who have the whole thing. And then, and then you look at some of the work that's been done by businesses. The Business Roundtable did a whole study and showed how we could save $700 million, $900 million on doing some other things. But none of that was put into this budget. Did, did the home nursing uh, center homes win and everybody else lost? Well, I think one of the things you have to look at in terms of the budget is, you know, a, a budget is not just a financial document. It is a political document. Yes, it is. And it is a document of, of whose priorities are in place and who has power. It's about power and priority. So when you're dealing with priorities, obviously the governor has certain priorities. Education is his first priority. Everything else is, is not as important as education. And he said that, in fact, in Cleveland today. Um, he didn't say it that way, but that's what he was saying. The second thing is, you know, with what's left, you have some very powerful interest groups. And quite frankly, um, you know, the aging, you know, the folks who keep people in nursing homes and, and help the aging there have a lot more power than the people who treat people outside of nursing homes. That's and true. that's a real, uh, that's the yeah. power part of it. And then there are also some federal Medicaid regulations yeah. at play here, too, that, you know, the direct, the require states to fund you know, the nursing home care. Yeah, the reimbursement rates for every dollar right. the state puts in, they get federal dollars back that don't work the same with the, with the home care. Not but the same way with the home right. care program. But, but there is kind of a, a, a ticking time bomb here. Um, you know, again, beyond this budget, uh, you, you ask, are any of these cuts really going to get restored in the future? Gil referred to the governor's speech uh, today, Friday at the Cleveland City Club. Uh, for the first time, he said that the state would end the so-called shell game uh, with the, the lottery profits, in this case, the slots revenue. Um, that's a billion dollars per budget. Yeah, the shell game says it's going to go for schools. Yeah. yeah, what happened before was you know for every dollar you put into education because the state constitution requires every lottery dollar profit goes into education they would take a dollar out. Yeah, that's the shell game. He says that's ending after the end of this budget. So that's a billion dollars. Whole isn't it for schools? 
So, but doesn't it create a hole on the other side? So that's great for schools, and he talks about additional revenue growth going to schools. But yeah, then all of the rest of the budget is going to be scrambled for those leftover dollars with no federal stimulus money. You know, five, six yeah. billion dollars of one-time money or more. And see, I think it's important to also point out that when you talk to legislators, and I know you have, Daryl, and I have, and you ask them, you know, now that the ink is dry, you know, will it actually stand up? Yeah, Nobody believes it's right now up. that the ink, even though the ink is now dry, that it's mm -hmm. going to last any much past the ink being dry. I mean, really, that the revenue projections, and I, one of the things I wanted to do and I didn't do, and I don't know if you've done it, uh, what the revenue projection is based on in terms of the rate of unemployment. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. if you have a rate of unemployment of, if it's based on, a, yeah. if the revenue projection is based, let's say, on a rate of unemployment of 9% yeah. and you're at 11% for a sustained period of time, your, your revenue projection yeah. is already shot. Mike, one more question on this topic. How long will it take for the state budget crisis to drop off of the average Ohioans' radar, not the folks who are relying on food assistance or home health care, but the average middle-class Ohioans who didn't see their taxes raised, do they start to tune out as we start to talk about it less? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, some of this stuff, I think, is going to affect us in the... Uh, uh, children's services and so forth with the county. They're not going to get the money that they, they did before. I don't think it's going to have any effect on the uh, judicial system other than uh, they're not going to have visiting judges and obviously there's ways for wage freezes and that type of thing. Um, but back to the city, which I know we're not talking about, if they don't yeah. pass it and the mayor does in fact cut back on the police, then I, how that affects the system, I don't know. And, and, and I think safety should be paramount to everything. If we don't have that, we've got a real problem. Let's get to the city income tax question. In the last days of the campaign for and against the Columbus income tax increase, critics called on the city to promise to use all of the new money on police and fire. The city said that's not wise and would be disingenuous, pointing to how the state uses the state the lottery education money. Gil Price, would this have a better chance of passing if they said we'll use it all for police and fire? It would, it would probably have a better chance of passing, uh, I think, but in the words of uh, Richard Nixon, I think, but it would be wrong. Uh, <laughs> because uh, the reality is that we've gone from 60% uh, of the money in the general fund going to police and fire in, 19, in 2000 to 73% today. And the reality is if you, tr if you tried to say, okay, we're only going to do this, I think, I think the mayor has said we've we've cut about 30% of our non-police uh, non force. And How see, much of that is politics in protecting the police and fire, which is good politically as far as the police and fire unions, and also good on the street, because you're telling the folks we're keeping you safe by saying we're not going to cut anything else. And how much of it is not, not creative budgeting? Well, I, I, think, budgeting. I, I think that I, I, that's a good question, but I think anybody would argue that if you've cut your non-police fire folks 30% over a period of eight years. You've pretty much carved a lot of what you used to do. Government does not do. There are things that government does today and government does less of today than they did in, in, in 1999. But that's assuming the police and fire don't have any room to cut. Yeah, but I, Gil said it earlier, it's a political document. Mm -hmm. And it talks to what your priorities and the needs of the people. If the ambulances, the garbage, and the police are not there, any elected official has a difficult time getting re-elected. 
garbage can become a problem. If I can't get my EM to me and my police don't show up, politicians have problems. So it is also a political diet. And it's never about logic. Don't, don't, that's not a part of the process. And remember something else that's important to consider. The Columbus's ratio of police uh, and fi of police in particular to citizens is lower than the ratio of a lot of other cities. Like, uh, uh, for example, Cincinnati has, I think, a, I think, I think about a thousand police officers and three hundred thirty thousand people. We have like uh, one thousand nine hundred police officers and seven hundred fifty thousand people. We have a much, I think Cleveland has a much lower, uh, much higher ratio sure. too. That there are so, complaints on how those offices are used. Are they actually on the street? Right, or are they doing all administrative that kind of jobs? What's, what's the mood out there, Mike? I mean, it's hard to get a read. You, you, you see the list of people who are supporting this from both parties, with big names on there that the mayor and, uh, and supporters are pushing out. Then you listen to Bob Connors on Saturday morning. You see the letters to the editor. You listen to WOSU's show, which is, they tend to lead a little bit more perhaps pro-tax. And there's a lot of negativity out there. So we're it's hard to get a read on this. It is hard to get a read. And, and I think probably that the people who, uh, the, the groups, the organizations, businesses, I think probably the most part do support it. But it's the economy we're in. It's very difficult to sell to the average citizen today who's really having a tough time making ends meet. And as Gil said, we're talking 9%, 10%, 11% unemployed, whatever the number is. And, and, and asking them to pay more money is, is very, very tough. I think it's going to be... We all know it's going to be a close race, but I think it's going to be very difficult. So the key is, I would assume, is a grassroots campaign. Get your supporters out. Which is why they're doing it in August, I, yeah. I, I suppose. Gil said it earlier, uh, before we turn the cameras on, get your people out because the opposition will be there. The game is to make sure your people who support this thing show up. And see, I think that's one of the most underestimated, underrated things in any election. It is, a, it, it is a referendum of the people who actually end up caring enough to show sure. up. And that, and, and you know, sometimes you know, it doesn't matter how many people are mad or glad that don't come to the polls. You know, you're going to, because, you know, you might only have, I wouldn't be surprised if you only had, what, 20%. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if you only had 20 or 30%. I heard a projection of 10%. 10%, that's quite possible. Are the make sure your ten percent. <laughs> Assuming right. that the supporters get their vote out, because the mayor is a very, very good politician. He's in his third term. He gets his vote out. Assuming they get their vote, is there enough anger out there, on from the opponent's standpoint, to compete with that grassroots effort? I've been arguing one of the things that makes this situation different is he had the gall to do it, and I think people are going to give him points for that. Now most people are not buying what I'm saying at this point. He uh, and and the wind. Of all the other river currents, he went the, up opposing the current because he's telling people the truth. I think he's going to get some points for that. Where everybody else is dodging taxes, he said we're going to we're going to raise taxes. Plus, he strategically did two things. The two things that emotionally get people going are police and fire, and they started the assault from the very beginning. And I think that makes points with people. The opposition have tried to lessen that, but I think it makes points. I think you're right. I think the ground he's, they've laid the groundwork pretty well. It's interesting to contrast the rhetoric of state officials who refuse to even consider a tax increase. I mean, if Columbus City income tax opponents wanted to put some anti-tax rhetoric on the air from some of Mayor Coleman's fellow Democrats, as in Governor Ted Strickland, you could just throw that up on the screen. You know, this is not the right time to be raising taxes in the state of Ohio. Well, does that apply to Columbus, Ohio as well, or not? 
Okay. With this reminder, we have a debate next Thursday, a live debate between supporters and opponents of the Columbus City income tax hike vote. Seven, uh, six o'clock Thursday, July 30th, right here at WOSU at COSI is the live debate. We will air that on Friday at this time, 930 on WOSU TV. It is now time for our off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, some predictions for the weeks ahead. Daryl Rowland, you're up first. Well, Mike, I guess what I'm going to express is a fear. And uh, we have a really great team of public affairs reporters at the Dispatch. And my fear is a, when, if the day comes, I fear it's going to be when the day comes, we get that call from a, a county out there um, of some kid who killed himself because he could no longer get mental health services or a child or an, or an elderly person abused because those protection services could no longer be funded by the state. Uh, that's a call I don't don't want to get, I, I just fear that, that we will, it's, that it's almost inevitable. Okay. Gil. I think that no matter what happens on August 4th, we're still going to be talking about taxes from now until November. In the city council races, we're still going to be talking about taxes from now until November. Okay. Sam. I'm making a prediction that in 24 to 36 months, we're going to raise taxes in the state of Ohio. And we're going to raise taxes in the state of Ohio because the revenue projections are not going to be met. The gambling numbers are not going to be achieved. And they're going to have no other alternative unless the state totally collapsed than but to raise taxes. Who's going to raise them, John Kasich or Ted Strickland? I think the, gen <laughs> <laughs> I think the General Assembly, along with the current governor, is going to have no alternative. Michael. I think this uh, incident involving the... Uh, uh, policemen on the motorcycles at 150 miles an hour, it's going to cause some... Uh, they didn't get the tickets right away. That's right. Eight days, some major changes in the highway patrol. I think they've been extremely embarrassed by this, and uh, I don't think the public likes it, and I think we'll see some, some changes in that respect. One final thought, a baseball story. There was a story in the New York Times last Sunday about how the scranton Wilkesbury Yankees, remember the Yankees, the old Clippers Yankees team? They moved to uh, northeastern Pennsylvania mainly because it was closer to New York, but also under promises they were going to get a brand new stadium. Well, there's been a change in government in that county, and the stadium is no longer on the drawing board, and the field doesn't drain properly. They've had to cancel seven games this spring because of all the rain they've had up there. Meanwhile, here in Columbus, the Clippers have been in a brand new ballpark and leading the league, the International League in attendance. Now, if the Indians can just pick up the pace a little bit, we'll be good to go. <laughs> that is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. You can see streaming video there. You can see my blog there. But, of course, I shan't Twitter. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.